VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, June the 24th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing this Come On With an edition of Open Line. We are looking forward to speaking with you on a topic of your choosing this morning. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, you know where I'm starting this morning, Game 5 tonight, Stanley Cup Finals. I am absolutely quivering with excitement. I mean, the Avalanche have been extremely tough at home in Denver at the Ball Arena, so I'm not going to get too ahead of myself, but I would imagine I'm like many of you, even the sort of uh, quasi-hockey fans, and even if you're a Leafs fan or Boston fan or Habs fan, whatever, maybe a lot of eyeballs will be on the hockey game tonight, 9.30 Island time. The Avalanche looking to wrap it up. Come on, let's go. All right, where are you watching the game? Give us a call. Let's talk about some hockey today. I know that Cecil was in the queue late yesterday to talk about hockey. I don't know what Cecil wanted to say, but let's see if we can get him on. All right, yesterday I also admitted that I got caught up in watching the Westminster Kennel dog show. And then David Meyer sent me a note saying that Siobhan Cody had a dog in the show. And I was like, is that right? And apparently so. So Siobhan Cody entered a Labrador retriever named Bo. His full name is Beaumont Hamill. Actually bred by Go Fetch Labradors. That's a breeding business run by Cody and her husband. So Bo won best in breed at the 146 Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show in New York on Wednesday. I had no idea, but that, that's kind of cool. Beautiful animal. Anyway, so Bo, best in breed. All right, and I know not everybody's a big sports fan. I totally get it. But if we stand back and think about it, sometimes sport, like music, has a healing property and a bit of unity that can come from it. Just think about the fact that back in 2006 during the Turin Olympics, we shut down the schools to watch Guju and the boys go for gold in Italy. And, of course, they came out on top. The Golden Goal in Vancouver, Sidney Crosby, Salt Lake, and Bob Cole's famous call, Joe Sackick, right? I mean, these are big moments in time. It was the day in history, 27 years ago, in 1995, South Africa defeated New Zealand in the final of the 1995 Rugby World Cup. So they're two giants when it comes to rugby nations. This was the first major sporting event post-apartheid, and it was a big deal. So the visual of Joel Stansky, the fly half, scoring a drop goal in extra time to win the match, and then Nelson Mandela presenting the trophy to Captain Francois Pinard. It is a monumental shift in the future of South Africa, and a lot of it held due to sport. So say people in South Africa. So that's a pretty interesting story. That was today in 1995. And this is a good one. Do you have a pair of Chucks, Dave? Do you wear the Chucks? 121 years ago today, shoe salesman Chuck Taylor was born in Indiana. He played a little college or basketball in high school. He began wearing the Converse All-Star shoe, which was introduced all the way back in 1917. He's a big fan of the product, big fan of the shoe. He approached the company for a job, traveled across the United States, selling the shoes at basketball clinics that he actually organized. At one point, the Chuck Taylors, which they became known as, had an 80% share of the entire sneaker industry in the United States. So there's been over 800 million pairs sold. I got a couple of pairs of Chucks. So Chuck Taylor, born in uh, 121 years ago today. And I saw this one on Twitter coming from our very own Brian O'Connell, who shares a bunch of Today in History kind of stuff, which I appreciate. 
He reports, today in history, in uh, 1497, the first recorded sighting of North America by European took place as explorer Giovanni Cabolto, John Cabot, claimed Eastern Canada for England. Mr. O'Connell also goes on to say, it's the first Friday of summer and we're exactly six months away from Christmas Eve. <laughs> well, way to go, O.C. And of course, you can catch Brian on the cabin party right here on your V-O-C-N. Okay. So let's get into some cost stuff. And I know it's frustrating, right? We're all feeling the pinch. The price of fuels, of course, an issue. And that's where government has played a role in trying to curb the prices, you know, a, a vacation of half of the provincial gas tax. All right. There's still some people clamoring for more to be done on that front. The area that I think is maybe of wider and broader concern, because not everyone drives, but everyone eats. The price of groceries becomes a tricky piece of business. Whether you factor in the fact that it's 7.7% inflation and the costs that are soaring, whether it be meats and vegetables, I mean, even things like flour and cooking oils, they're up some 30%. So across the board, everything's more expensive. Fresh food, 10% more than it was this time a year ago. Fresh vegetables up over 8% from the same time period. Some things remain stable, like frozen vegetables and whatnot, but you just wonder... Because government can do something about the price of fuels. And not as much as people would like necessarily. But this is where we get caught up just depending on the free market to determine what we're paying at the grocery stores. Grocery store profits, I know the margins are thin, but the profits are up. Nothing wrong with profit. But a lot of folks, one in three Canadians say they're eating less simply because they can't afford it. So what do you do? What do we do? Uh, last month, 1.3 million Canadians visited food bank. And we know over the course of a year, in the neighborhood of 5 million Canadians rely in full on a food bank. A distinct and utter failure in governance in modern-day Canada 2022. But what does anybody, or what can anybody do with the price of groceries? You know, we have some excellent organizations, and food banks, of course, are a backstop. And <laughs> thank you very much for the hard work that they all do. And then the good folks at First, uh, Food First NL. They're launching the capital city of St. John's first-ever food action plan. Maybe we should try to get someone on from whether it be uh, Josh Mee or Sarah Crocker, who's the program coordinator with Food First NL. Trying to come up with ways to strengthen the local food system. Mobile food markets, pop-up markets throughout the capital city. The access and the price point is something that's just so crucial to get right. I will go on to say one more time, because when government is always talking about the price of fuels, maybe not enough attention given to the price of food, access, reliability of supply, and... Maybe it feels like I'm banging a drum in the wilderness or in a vacuum, but I don't know why we haven't tried to understand for security of supply and for price points and the creation of jobs and access for food to food is why we aren't thinking about and talking about just peppering the entire landscape with greenhouses, community gardens, all these types of things which we know work. They're proven to work. So if you want to tackle that from any angle, we can do that. All right, so it is the very last day of school. The students wrapped it up yesterday in the K-12 system. Teachers and administrators and other staff done today. Well, I guess there'll be some ongoing custodial work and what have you, and repairs and the like. It's been an interesting school year again this year. And, you know, we even talked about food. It's simply amazing and kind of pathetic that for many students, the place to get a bite to eat is going to school, whether it be the school lunch program, Kids Eat Smart. Oh, it just popped into my mind. 
But anyway, uh, at VOCM.com, there's a story that talks about the teachers' awards that were just handed out, Premier's Awards and Minister of Education's Awards. Please do have a look. Recognize if any of those teachers are from your students, uh, your sons or daughters' school, and congratulations to all involved. There is also an ongoing symposium, wraps up today, regarding learning loss and the preparation for high school students to move on from 10 to 11, 11 to 12, 12 and on. We've got to figure out exactly what supports need to be put in place for the high schoolers to be prepared. There, you know, inside the K-9 system, it's a little different feel and flair, and it's probably a little bit easier to coordinate about knowing what class was able to absorb what amount of the curriculum and some that didn't get attended to and maybe some opportunity to plant those seeds early on in the next school year. But that symposium on learning loss, which is very real, we've got to understand it, and we've got to make sure all these students get exactly what they need over the summer. Speaking of schools, look... There's going to be some legal wrangling here. As it currently stands, the Schools Act is pretty clear. There are some schools that are continuing to be owned by the archdiocese, ran by the government. As long as they're used for educational purposes, they shall remain untouched. That's my understanding of the law as it pertains to the Schools Act, the legislation controlling schools in the province. But lawyers yesterday representing the uh, victims of Mount Cashel say they want more information. So it may look like today those schools are untouchable and they will remain as they operating as they are as schools. But I guess the court is going to have to decide exactly what goes on here. Because it's one thing for us to just breathe a sigh of relief. And I know all the congregates and uh, parishioners at the churches have been sold are not doing and not doing that breathing a sigh of relief. But if they're going to fight about it in court, then the Schools Act might be amended based on a judge's ruling about the future of these particular schools. So if you want to take that, that on in any angle inside of schools, you know me, I'm going to do it. One second, sip of coffee. We're back. Mentioned yesterday that Eastern Health is going to incorporate some software to ensure that doctors are properly and appropriately prescribing uh, antibiotics and maybe some other drugs. I had some interesting feedback from a couple of people who said, you know, just imagine, we're hurting to have doctors come and to stay in the province. Now we're telling them what they can and cannot do. Yeah, we are. Because there's nowhere in the country that you can just, based on your own wills and wants, prescribe whatever you want and do whatever you want. It's simply not true. There's got to be guardrails in place. And it's not me saying these things. It's not the layperson. It's Dr. Peter Daly, the infectious disease physician and medical microbiologist at Memorial University. We have the highest rate of outpatient antimicrobial drug use in the country. Dr. Daly goes on to say that even we cut it in half is probably still too much. A quote from the good doctor, the germs that cause infectious disease are becoming progressively more resistant to the drugs that we use to treat them. And that's because we are routinely overprescribing these antimicrobial drugs. So... There's a problem, and this is well understood. The numbers have come down since 2017, but the software is going to be a desktop where the physician will put your patient, the patient data in, symptoms, current medications, test results to see whether or not the antibiotic should be prescribed. You know, the concept that, you know, we've got too much oversight and we're micromanaging the doctors, we've got an issue beyond the fact that we're costing, it's costing a lot of money for prescribing drugs unnecessarily. But when we talk about the superbugs 
and the fact that our immune systems have been not as robust as they could be when we're taking too many antibiotics, then of course this is a big deal. And we're not chasing doctors away by asking them to do exactly what they're supposed to do. So another quote from, the, uh, from Dr. Daly. It comes to a lack of special understanding or special training. It comes to, in some cases, laziness or inability or unwillingness to continuously evaluate day by day the antibiotic therapy. Not a criticism coming from me, a criticism, criticism coming from inside the house. The call is coming from inside the house. All right, let's go. And we had a good chat yesterday with Dr. Janine Hubbard, of course, a psychologist, president of the Association for Psychologists. This one is an even more complicated than some of the other, the family doctor issue and recruiting specialists and what have you. The 45% vacancy at Eastern Health of Psychology positions, Dr. Hubbard says it's even worse in other health authorities. Then to make it even more complicated, there's two residency programs for uh, psychologists in the doctoral program because there won't be enough supervisors to handle all of the pending graduates. So, you know, now I guess it's right back to where we started, where we're going to have to recruit psychologists from elsewhere, as opposed to the churn that we have, the feeder, two residency programs, one on hold because there's not enough supervisors. Now, I don't know if that's the right term or not, but they're mentors for the additional training required before they get out in the field on their own. So, boy, oh, boy. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? Let's get her going here on Friday. Uh, what's this? Safety. Oh, safety. Especially sad story, we now know that the two truck drivers that were involved in the head-on collision on the Trans-Canada both perished, both are dead. There are some supports for the first responders who have arrived, who had arrived in that horrific scene. And there's just far too many of these types of headlines. And then there's one, you know, for people to be held to account for what they've done when behind the wheel, whether it be the three aggressive drivers driving over 50 kilometers over the speed limit. And yesterday, 21-year-old man from Marystown sentenced to just under two years in jail for impaired driving that killed his passenger in Roshun last July. He's been sentenced to 729 days in jail. Spares him from a federal institution. Then goes on probation for three years. Banned for driving for four years. I don't know. You know, we talk tough on crime and whether or not we do enough for rehabilitation or what have you, but some sentences just come across as awful lenient. Less than two years, there's a man dead. If you want to take it on, we can do it. And far be it for me to tell people how to spend their own money, right? It's not my position. We had a chat yesterday with Merv Wiseman talking about the Transport Safety Board's review of what happened when the island lady sank and two boys from Mary's Harbor dead. No distress signals, and they did not have emergency beacons. The father of one of the dead fishermen went ahead and made sure that they bought uh, emergency beacons for all of their vessels at the Labrador Shrimp Company. So I know, you know, money doesn't grow on trees, but mandating emergency beacons so that we can pinpoint where you, we heard from you last and a, dis- uh, pardon me, a distress signal can be dispatched, maybe some of these stories have better outcomes than the enormous amount of water that had to be searched to try to find the two lads from Mary's Harbor. So that's something else. And this story, look, help me understand what's going on here. And this is about the evolving story regarding the ongoing investigation into everything, including the Nova Scotia mass shooting. So the RCMP commissioner, and I'm, I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind entirely around this story. So... There's alleged interference from the Prime Minister's office, Justin Trudeau's office, maybe Minister Mendocino, maybe Bill Blair, maybe others, about 
asking the RCMP to release details of the weapons used in the mass shooting before the investigation was concluded, because some of it had an overlap with the American border and the smuggler, the importation of some of the weapons. I'm not sure what went on. The Prime Minister says it simply didn't happen, but there's got to be some sort of investigation. But therein lies the rub. Who does the investigation? The government? The RCMP? The two institutions involved? So just a couple of days later, after the information was revealed, two of the weapons used appeared on the banned list. There were some 1,500 weapons banned in the country, or firearms banned, which is a debate in and of itself, you know, as opposed to a strict focus on the border, because we know a lot of the guns used in crime are smuggled in from the United States. So if there was any political interference there, which I'm not even sure how much sense it makes, the ban list was going to be the ban list no matter what, wasn't it? And, you know, people talk about trying to uh, prey on tragedy, whether it be the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and all of a sudden we're talking more gun control in this country. If we're waiting for mass shooting from the states, you don't have to wait very long. But this is a strange story. If there was indeed political interference, you know, it's just unbelievably inappropriate. Should never, ever, ever be the case. Any political involvement in law enforcement investigations is ridiculous. And now people will draw a very quick line to the requesting of a deferral of prosecution for SNC and what have you. But this story, I'm not even sure I understand it, to be honest. But if you want to talk about it. We can do it. We're on Twitter or VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Time for a tune before we come back and speak with you. This tune is an homage to disc jockey Wolfman Jack. You know, back in the day, your record company would go directly to the DJs, put the vinyl in their hands, try to get you some airtime. So Wolfman Jack, one of the notable names with his grisly voice. So back in 1974, the guests who released this homage, clap for the Wolfman. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin on line number one. Say good morning to Courtney Barber. Good morning, Courtney. You're on year hi hi there how are you this morning grand this morning thanks how about you i'm good great um, well i guess mostly uh we were talking you were talking earlier about you know the cost of food and things like that and um we were on earlier with uh, jerry lynn but i'm not sure exactly what was talked about um, but what we're seeing, Patty, is people just not being able to um, afford to get to, like, medical appointments and stuff like that. They're, we're seeing so many extra food requests because somebody had to go to their cancer treatment or stuff like that um, just with the cost of a gas gone up. And, you know, the assistance from the government is locked in at um, an assistance rate that was set when gas was below a dollar a liter. So we have a lot of seniors who are coming in from Carboneer, Clarenville, Gander, places like that, and they they just can't afford to get in for their treatments. Um, so they're taking their grocery money and using it for their gas and then left without food. Well, everything dovetails together. You know, it's the perfect storm, isn't yeah. it? So you say we. This is neighbors in, neighbors in need, right? The Facebook yeah, group. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, just give us an idea of the increase in traffic on your site and the number of requests, say, you know, year over year, or what you've seen since you've opened the doors on that Facebook group. Um, well, you know, over the first two years, we definitely, you know, we saw um, decreases and then increases in need. But over the last, say, six months, 
it's just been really crazy because we're seeing a lot of people who were able to support and help other people before who are now in the same boat and they're unable to help but they're actually reaching out for help so um you know the amount of people that we have um in need is just doubled well, I mean, I don't run an official group, but I do indeed have a lot of people that turn to us to point them in the right direction where we can get them some food in particular. And I'm going to say it's about the same. If I was yeah. getting, I'll just use round numbers, if I was getting 10 requests a week two years ago, I'm definitely getting 20 this year. So it's just a, it's a very difficult circumstance for so many people across the province and across the country. It's just simply amazing. And, you know, if we have groups like yours, which does excellent work, and congratulations to you and everyone else who supports the your Facebook group, Neighbors in Need. But if we have 5 million Canadians that rely on a food bank in full, we've got to figure it out. Look, the price of fuels and stuff is a conversation that does indeed overlap into the price of groceries, the price and access to food. But there are some levers that governments can pull on that front. Not quite as easy when we talk about the price of food. I just don't know where we go, what we do. I do think between you guys and food personnel and different food banks, and maybe if we incorporated more and more of the way community gardens and these greenhouses that I keep banging on about, maybe we can make things better. I don't know. When you said that, it would just like, you know, I live in a community, obviously I'm not in Newfoundland, but I, I work very, very deeply in Newfoundland, but where I live, we have a community greenhouse and like people just work together to keep it going. But the amount of food that it produces is just substantial. And something like that in St. John's would just be so beneficial. I would be a part of it. Like, you know, so many people would be um, like, let's get the ball rolling on that <laughs> Uh, but it's crazy. Like, we used to stock, because uh, we focus on fresh food, so um, we don't focus on non-perishables and stuff like that, because that's what the food bank focuses on. Um, so we would stock um, romaine lettuce, and we could buy a six-pack for $6 um, to put one leaf or one head of lettuce in each um lot of shared groceries that we give mm -hmm. now it's up over ten dollars for a six pack so we can no longer put that into our shared groceries like the, the price of everything is like it's not even like gone up a little bit some things have doubled flour is up 30 percent Yes, yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Cooking oil is 30%. Uh, meat, fruits, and vegetables. Fruits and vegetables uh, have gone up in the neighborhood of 8 and 9%. It, it's, I don't know. You know it's the same question we're asking ourselves all the time, whether it be about inflation or the price of gas or the price of diesel or the price of food, is where does it end? And what can be done? Definitely. Good job. Pardon me. Courtney, you're doing great work on that uh, Facebook page, and I should keep that in mind every now and then when we have people turning to us for a little bit of help is to also point them in your direction because you've got a lot of generous folks that are participating on Neighbors in Need. Absolutely. I heard the lady who was on yesterday, and she was looking for a few items, and uh, definitely you can always refer them to uh, to come to us. Uh, we're here for to help anybody. We really appreciate that, and we appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. You too, Courtney. Bye-bye. Yep, there you go. Let's go to line number two. David, you're on the air. Good morning. Oh, I'm doing grand. How about you? I'm, I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm calling from uh, on the northern peninsula here this morning. Okay. Uh, just uh, another note of awareness that uh, our kids are on vacation. And, you know, just try to slow down. We've been... Just about a, a year now, or since June, uh, going around, 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 and we're taking for granted the school buses and that. But right now, the kids are going to be on them brand new bikes. Remember, 
Yeah, and they'll be rambunctious now that they've got that little bit of freedom uh, with school being done for the year and maybe a little bit carefree and who knows, we all try to plant that seed of awareness in our children's heads about looking both ways and being careful and all the rest of it and where you ride your bike and the way to behave. But, you know, we've got to rely on the motoring public to be keenly aware because now in some neighborhoods where there hasn't been kids around on the street in the middle of the day, well, they will be today. So let's plant that seed of awareness in everybody's mind. Absolutely, David. Thank you very much for your show, sir. I appreciate your time. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, the, the province has struck what they're calling an acute response team to deal with some of the homelessness and the transient, the, the transient homelessness issue in central Labrador, Happy Valley Goose Bay in particular. This has been an ongoing matter, so we'll see where we're going with this acute response team. We'll speak with one of the members of this team. He's the independent member for Lake Melville, Perry Trimper. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. During the break, a caller from the West Coast call spoke with David to ask this question. What happened with uh, Carl Diamond coming on the show? We had, indeed, uh, booked uh, some time with Carl Diamond from the Diamond Group of Companies to uh, come on yesterday. They canceled on Wednesday, said his schedule didn't allow for it. They did tell us that early next week he will join us on the program. So that's the update there for those who are interested in hearing from Mr. Diamond. Of course, this is all about the proposal by the Stephenville Airport. $200 million investment, thousands of jobs uh, to build these massive drones. But, you know, there's a story that ignites it even further today, the fact that the Diamond Group is going to buy an ownership stake in a startup in the UK called Urban Airport. They are airports for drones and EV tolls. That's a, a drones and aircraft that use electric power to take off. So hopefully Mr. Diamond will be on next week. So that's the update that the listener was looking for. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the independent member for Lake Melville. That's Perry Trimper. Good morning, Perry. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Good to be on. Uh, David, uh, your producer, reached out to me uh, yesterday and asked if I could come on and give a little update on the acute response team, what's happening in Happy Valley Goose Bay and so on. So pleased to do that today. Um, I guess and if I could just uh, maybe explain a little background for, for folks. So I think it was about uh, about four weeks ago, about a month ago, the mayor reached out to the premier and, and explained to him that the community was really starting to see an increase in uh, the number of what we refer to as uh, as transient people who uh, you know battling addictions um, not usually from the community uh, but have uh, taken up um, I'll use the term residents they're, they're living here but they're living very rough um, we've had uh, individuals in the past but this year uh, for a variety of reasons we're, we're seeing uh, quite an increase in the number of people that are struggling and of course, the community is also struggling then to respond to that. So uh, there's matters in front of the town and, and council's perspective. There's issues around public safety and, and trying to help both those who are struggling with addictions, but also uh, people living in the residences, businesses, and so on. So everyone is looking for help. So uh, following the first meeting with the premier, I organized a series of meetings with the premier again and a series of ministers uh, that first week of June. And we went down essentially on one-on-one meetings with each minister, asking them to look within their department, look within their legislation as to what additional support could be provided uh, both to the municipality but also under provincial jurisdiction to uh, both assist in helping those who were really struggling and in the aspects of public safety. So 
Coming out of that, the Premier decided to uh, appoint uh, Lisa Dempster and John Hogan as co-chairs of this acute response team. And I, uh, the, the term acute, I, maybe it's a little confusing for some of us, so I, I looked up the definition, and it essentially means immediate. And, and that really is, is, is what's needed here, is um, immediate support for everyone involved. And uh, so a variety of ministers, um, the leaders of the three Indigenous groups, and essentially decision makers are, are working together now on a uh, as fast as possible but also with with the support of everyone at this group um, actions help, help me understand how and why the transient homeless population grows during the summer months like where do they go in the winter what's the what's behind the numbers growing in the summer yeah, and you use the term transient. You know, many, many people, not all, but many do have homes and they return back to their communities when it gets cold and when the when the supports are not there uh, to to be able to um, exist in the community. So they'll return when the temperature gets cold, they'll go back. Now, you know, we, we had two tragedies and many other close calls through the winter uh, with uh, the supports and the, and the province responded by appointing uh you know, uh, an overflow system to the shelter that we operate. So at any one time uh, through the winter, we were having in the vicinity of probably 48 to 50 people uh, that we were supporting, uh, you know, keeping them out of, you know, protecting them from uh, very cold temperatures and uh, and uh, a roof over their head. Uh, that in many ways has created a, a, a um, you know, a nucleus that continues to build now with warmer weather and people are traveling in for medical appointments and then sometimes they choose not to go back they they will stay here and uh you know the issue really is not so much homelessness but intergenerational trauma these are complicated problems and uh, addictions and and unfortunately you know there is perhaps greater access and availability to alcohol um to perhaps some of these other uh, controlled substances here in, in 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 Happy Valley Goose Bay, and this is building to a point that uh, uh, the municipality is really stressed. It and got so dire that there was even warnings put out about drinking hand sanitizer. Some people mocked that, but I thought I found it to be quite sad. So even in some of these uh, shelters, those were the signs put up: is don't drink the hand sanitizer because you can see the alcohol content is listed on the label. But that's how dire the situation is. I've um, been out uh, recently, had the opportunity to ride along with the municipal enforcement officer, and I can tell you it is the number one substance that we are seeing amongst the individuals we stop and talk to and try to understand um, what they're doing and what we can do to help them. And then, unfortunately, you know, there are arrests, there are uh, there are warnings, uh, but hand sanitizer, you know, here we are through a pandemic. And uh, as I reached out to Labrador Grandpa Health earlier this week to see what can be done to, to help limit it, uh, you know, they're being stolen. And while with the best of intentions in a public space, we're making hand sanitizer available, um, uh, it's it's come to realize that, uh, yeah, there's uh, some relief uh, with the alcohol content. And as uh, shocking as it is, they're mixing it with water. And uh, this is this is what we often find in the backpacks. And it's it's really tragic. And unfortunately, uh, under uh, you know that intoxicated state, it is a very challenging situation. It, it's uh, very unpredictable. And uh, the I heard the mayor speak last night that he said, I think through the month of April, his MEO, his municipal enforcement officer, handled something like 87 um, public intoxications uh, by himself. For the month of May, it was over 400. 
That's one municipal officer dealing with over 400 uh, interactions with public intoxication in our community. So it's escalating and it's uh, it's very much, uh, you know, acute, immediate response is what we're, we're seeking right now. So, and sometimes we say shelters. Um, sometimes that's just the bricks and mortar or it's just a place to lay your head as opposed mm-hmm. to something more akin to the gathering place with a variety of programs and services, deal with addictions, deal with mental health concerns, deal with provision of the fundamentals the necessities of life and a roof over your head. Is that part of the permanent solution that the team's working towards in this area? It, it needs to be, Patty. Your 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 insight is often uh, very much appreciated. There's two groups, Frank, first of all, and to add further complexity to this. There's been a, an action team that was appointed about a year and a half ago, and they've been looking on at this longer-term solution. They've been looking at, you know, what do we need, need in terms of, you know, looking at our demographics as our community ages and so on. What are the different kinds of housing we need? And most importantly for this topic, you know, for those that require that those supportive uh, housing needs, um, you know, are, are, do we have a sufficient uh, number, and and how can we help them uh, be as independent as possible? So, uh, we just had an excellent tour of the gathering place. It's my first time seeing it and, and meeting my my friend, the former Premier Paul Davis. Uh, you know, that is an impressive operation, no question. Is it what we need here in Happy Valley Goose Bay? I, I'm not sure. Um, what I would say, though, that there are elements there that I, I feel are very important. And it's really, um, you know, providing a bowl of soup and, and uh, you know, for somebody who's who's really struggling, a meal is absolutely the most vital uh, support that we can provide. But we really need to help them, the, the therapy, the counseling, uh, those special outreach workers that uh, could really, uh, you know, start that process of healing. And, and it's, it's not short term, but it, it can work. And if we're patient, you know, and it's one, one at a time, you know, I, I'm not sure of the total numbers of people we're dealing with, but each of them have their own separate stories, and each of them will require their own solutions. So it's going to take uh, much more resource. And, you know, just listening to your show and the news this week, you know, we're really struggling for psychiatrists, psychologists in this province, and we're, we're really going to need that kind of help. Um, this community, I, I would suggest, is is really feeling uh, feeling the pandemic, it's feeling the lack of professional resources, but also it's feeling, um, you know, generations of, of trauma that have just come together in this perfect storm that the municipality is looking for help with. Well, the acute response team has been struck, and we've known these issues have been present in the Happy Valley Goose Bay and other parts of the province. Let's hope there's some immediacy uh, given to their concerns and their issues and some permanent solutions in place because just treating revolving door type of issues, it doesn't get us too far. There's a bit of field good at the end of the summer, and then it just rears its ugly head again next. Uh, I appreciate the time, Perry. Anything else you'd like to add? I, I absolutely, uh, Patty. I'd just like to add that I, you know, sometimes, uh, well, there's no question the solution here is going to be very complicated, but also I feel every organization, every department, every person can contribute in some small or sometimes larger way. Uh, we'll get there if we can just uh, all step forward and see what we can do to help. Thank Appreciate you. this. Thanks, Perry. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. It's Perry Trimper. He's an independent member for Lake Melville. Will I go Overton before the break, David? Uh, yes, let's do that. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Overton. You're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. Thanks for taking my call. Pleasure. I sent you a copy of a letter, um, and I'm sure you're too busy to read it. I sent it uh, earlier in the, in the early in the week. I saw it. And it. I'm sorry. I did see it. Yeah. Well, thank you. 
And um, so reiterate for, uh, for our, your listeners, uh, it's, a, it's a public, the heading of the letter, of course, a public health hazard, raw sewage discharge on the ground, on government property near my house. My house, of course, being in St. Anthony. Yes, sir. I addressed the letter to the Minister of Health, Minister of Government Services, Minister of Environment, Minister of Environment, uh, Municipal Affairs, and the town of St. Anthony. <coughs> Excuse me. None of whom have responded, but I have managed to get some an- not answers. I have managed to know where the letter has gone. One of the really, um, um, just as an aside, I got a reply from the Minister of Health, uh, not from the Minister, but from the office in the, in the Ministry of Health, saying I'm not authorized to send her a letter. That was really odd, but that's just beside. Anyway, so get on. Consider so. yourself authorized. Well, Consider yourself now authorized. <laughs> well, this was an automatic email response <laughs> from from this person at the Minister of Health. I'm not authorized to send her an email. Help us anyway. understand one of the questions that you posed in your letter. Did the town of St. Anthony apply for and receive permit for the installation of this sewage, so sewage discharge? Raw sewage discharging on the ground yep. out in front of my house. Been there for it's been there for years. It was only I, recently that I was down around in this area and and saw it. And then inquired about it, how it got there. Apparently, this house used to be, not this, I mean my house. There's one house in my neighborhood, and I'll call my neighborhood about 20 houses, that doesn't, that isn't connected to the town sewer system uh, for no reason. And I am technically qualified as to whether uh, sewers and things can be connected. There's absolutely no technical reason why the house can't be connected to the street, but it isn't. It used to have a septic tank. The city snowplow ran over the septic tank and crushed it, and crushed the pipe, of course, causing a problem for a homeowner. So the city, town, goes in, ignores the septic tank that had been there previously, sticks in a new pipeline, so now instead of discharging into a septic tank with, I'll call it clear effluent then discharging, we have a straight pipe out onto the ground. Now, I'm sure that's, not I'm sure, I'm more than sure because I have read the regulations many times over the past 40 years. You can't do that kind of stuff. How can the town of St. Anthony do that, discharge this, within 100 yards of the Minister of Municipal Affairs office, when she visits her constituency office, she can almost see it if she had if she bothered to look in that direction. Anyway, I've got no answers from nobody, and it's still continuing to pile up. So here's without describing what comes out of an end of a uh, end of a sewer pipe, and there, you know there are rules. You're allowed to discharge into the ocean. Follow the rules. And one of the rules you is don't, you don't you don't just discharge it onto the ground and wait for a a very high tide and perhaps a storm with the wind in the right direction to wash it. Yeah, of course not. That's I mean, not it, the way it works. it's something is ridiculous that we have so many ocean outfalls well, anyway. That's exactly. This is no. This is not an ocean outfall. This is a single outfall that the town installed down over the bank recently. Not like something that was installed a hundred years ago. This was this is done recently. Anyway, this has been sent to all these departments. Now the problem is this: this 
installation took place when our present minister was a councillor. See the conflict? Uh, yes, I do. Oh, so here's the so here's the here's the uh, here's the minister's civil servants to investigate this illegal or unlawful sewage installation that took place when the minister was councillor. I don't expect to get many answers, but if you recall the letter, I have very three I have three very distinct questions, and that's all I need answers is those questions. The questions are, when the town did this a few years ago, did they apply for, as you are supposed to do, and receive a permit for that installation? The second question is, does the town... Now, and now this is an, it goes over someone else's property. So the house is on one property. It then crosses over the government property. The regulations say, of course, you have to have an easement. Does the town have a legal easement to cross government property with the sewer line? I didn't add and discharge the sewer onto the government property. But you can add that. And if so, if all this is approved, provide me a copy of the final approval certificate. Uh, when, when these things are approved by government sewers installations, there are certificates issued. So if the certificate has been issued, I want to see it. And in that case, is fine. The other question is, and, and if it's issued, you know, and that has to continue to pile up down at the uh, down at the edge of the ground, okay, that's fine. But why not just put a septic tank back in as it was, so that instead of the mess coming out, we simply have a septic tank. And of course, the right thing to do is simply connect it to the city sewer in the street. Yeah, certainly. I mean, and even yeah, the picture, the, right thing to do. the picture of the pipe just, you know, sticking out under the grass by a few feet and pouring onto the, I guess, to the beachfront there. And even for the ocean outfalls, I know you corrected me on this one, but the it can't be even discharged until it's past low tide. Low tide. There's all kinds of rules and regulations sure. that affect how a ocean outfall is to be constructed. That picture that you see isn't how it has to be done. Well, of course not. Uh, let us know if you do get any response to any of the questions. Most importantly, I guess, uh, the summary question number three. Provide me with a copy of your final approval, because then you'll know that the process was adhered to. Uh, anything else quickly, sir, before I have to go? Thank you for taking my call, sir. I, I welcome your call anytime. Thanks. And we're so many tourists around St. Anthony, and I take them all out, and I show them this and say, see if you can find an iceberg among this. Oh, my. Not very pleasant, but there it is. Thanks Thank over you, to sir. you. You're welcome. Good morning, Dale. Bye bye. That's ridiculous. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, for five centuries, we were fishing for cod off our shores, and then on uh, the 2nd of July in 1992, the federal government banned cod fishing. The cod moratorium created that day. Join us on line number five is Ryan Clear from CNL. Good morning, Ryan. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Do you and your listeners? Thanks for taking the call, sir. Happy to do it. Yeah, yes, Patty. As you just said, the 30th anniversary of the Northern Codmore Moratorium is coming up on July the 2nd. That's next Saturday, the long weekend. We've got an, an event planned for this coming Thursday. Now, it's a nonpartisan event. It's going to be held at the Delta. That's the same downtown St. John's Hotel where the late Mr. Crosby made the announcement where, yeah, uh, the biggest layoff in Canadian history. We've got a number of speakers. We've got music by Jim Payne. We're encouraging the public to come out. We'll have an open mic on on the floor for comments, uh, and it will be a chance for people to express themselves. 
Uh, your listeners, most of your listeners know, maybe a lot of your young listeners don't know, but the moratorium was supposed to last two years. It continues to this day. We have a small-scale stewardship fishery, but the moratorium is still officially ongoing. It's supposed to last two years. Now we're in the 30th year. All three cod stocks adjacent Newfoundland Labrador are in the critical zone. There's been little improvement. So Thursday, June the 30th, it's 1.30 to 3.30 p.m., it's in Salon B, the same salon again, where, where Crosby shut her down at the Delta Hotel. We would like to see everybody come out, listen to our speakers, maybe make some comments from the floor. But this is an occasion that must be marked, uh, how it impacted it, us in the past, how it's impacting us moving forward. Um, we hope everybody comes out. The visuals of that day are incredible. And then some further, I guess I'll call them altercations uh, on the wharf. It is pretty remarkable stuff. You know, it not only impacted the industry itself, we saw tens of thousands of people leave the province never to return. So this has had a widespread impact, even if people don't re- realize it. Not invested in, not involved in the fishery directly or indirectly, but it was a provincial matter that the repercussions are felt to this day. Uh, Patty, I was in the room that day. I was actually the fisheries reporter with the Telegram. I was sitting next to the late Bill Callahan, who passed away just a little while ago. Uh, I'll never forget it. First off, it was the only press conference I've ever uh, I ever covered as a journalist where the the speaker was actually let out by police uh, escort. But you know, throughout that announcement, uh, John Crosby did not lose his composure. He continued to speak at the back of the room, as you said. You had fishermen who had been kept in another room. Um, and they were upset because Crosby didn't tell them to the faces. They were also expect about the amount of initial compensation. I believe it was 225 a week. But between Mr. Crosby at the front of the room and the messaging there, the magnitude of the messaging and, and the violence in the back of the room were, I mean, we were inside. We didn't know what was happening. You just hear people trying to ram their way in. Um, I can tell you, Patty, it made a mark on my life, and it's certainly set the tone for my career in terms of the fisheries. It actually, I'd I'd go so far, Patty, as to tell you that it it ruined me as a journalist because I I took it personally. In terms of the the mismanagement uh, on on behalf of mainly the federal government, but also the province, too, I, I took it personally. I couldn't let it go. And if you have that kind of attitude covering any kind of story, you're no good as a journalist. I think a lot needs a lot needs to be said, um, and people need to be reminded about the magnitude and the repercussions of of, of what happened that day. I can't believe it's been 30 years. I can't believe I'm. Uh, I can't believe I'm, uh, I actually attended and covered that as a journalist. I can't believe I'm that old, but it is what it is, I suppose. I suppose, uh, but it's still remarkable visuals and some of the audio that came from that day and consequential days thereafter. It's just wild stuff. And to know that 30 years later, we're still in terrible shape regarding the strength of the biomass of the Codstock, all three. It's, it's really something else. Give the folks the details one more time about the event you have scheduled for Thursday. Well, it's, um, it's, it's this coming Thursday, June the 30th. We didn't want to have it on the date because it's in the middle of a long weekend. A lot of people out of town. It's 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. It's at the Delta in Salon B. Please come. This is very important. Patty, do I have, uh, uh, do I have time for one more quick point? Yes, sure. Quickly. The the price setting panel. I want to talk about that. Um, The price setting panel, for the information of your listeners, it it sets the price of fish. When the FFAW and the ASP, when they can't agree on the price, it goes to the government-appointed panel. The panel uh, chooses one price or the other. But as we've seen with 
with uh, shrimp and crab and sea cucumbers. And now what we hear is capelin. The price is set. Nobody follows it. My, my point is there's been some suggestion that you change the panel so it could choose. Uh, it can go in the middle. And it can choose. It doesn't have to choose one price or, or, or the other, but go in the middle. My only point is that I do not believe that that will work. I believe the panel has outlived its usefulness. It has to go. We've got to go back to scratch and start from square one. The panel does not work. We've got too many fisheries where the price is set. Processors ignore it. And, and now there's, there's all this momentum for change. There should be change, but I don't think that the panel can be fixed. Well, it certainly doesn't work in its current form. That much, I think we can all agree. Uh, just look at the stand specifically on shrimp this go-around. I uh, appreciate the time this morning, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, Ryan also did mention Capelin. I have some seniors who are looking for some Capelin. The Capelin are rolling. So if you'd like to uh, pass along a feed of Capelin to some seniors who have been uh, messaging me on Twitter, we'll connect you. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. When I was a young fellow playing minor hockey, Anne Newhook was a hockey mom to sons Sean and Stephen. And now she's hockey nan to Stephen and, so- and Sean's sons, and one of whom is playing in Game 5 of the Stanley Cup Finals tonight for the Colorado Avalanche. Join us on line number two is Anne Newhook. Good morning, Mrs. Newhook. You're on the air. Good morning, Addy. <laughs> Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing great this morning. Thanks a lot for making time for us. Good. Um, uh, nice to do it. Nice to talk to you. So, of course, we've known each other a long time, and it's still a surreal thing for me to watch Alex and Abby in particular thrive the way they are in, in hockey. But just take us back to games one and two. You had a chance to travel with the family down to the ball arena to watch those games. The atmosphere looks incredible. What was it like? Oh, my. Uh, Patty, it was, um, I don't know, like John DeFolta would say, it was electrifying. It was beautiful. <laughs> Um, uh, the whole town, the whole city of Denver is, was wrapped up in excitement. Um, the streets so were lit with, you know, uh, flags were flying overhead with all the numbers of the uh, of the uh, of the Avs players. And uh, Ball Arena was just alive. I think it comes alive like 10 or 11 in the morning, and people are playing bands and and socializing all day long. It was uh, really exciting. And just to see the crowds of people coming in, it, it was amazing. I mean, I was just um, enthralled with it all. And so was I from afar. And as, as a singer yourself, it's kind of reminiscent of English football, English soccer games where the crowds break into song. When they kick into all the small things, Blink-182, that's an experience that I don't think you can mimic in any other hockey arena. Oh, I know. That was wonderful. Um, and they, they start that song, you know, usually like in the third third period they start singing it. And it's um, it's so nice to hear. Everybody joins in and knows the words to it, you know. And when we went in, um, they gave us all like bands for our hands. And uh, they would turn, uh, turn uh, white or blue or red. And like 18,000 people with wrists on their uh, hands that would light up. You, uh, you probably saw it on TV where one time it would be all white, the next time it would be white and red or white or blue. It was beautiful, beautiful. So uh, Alex and Abby, as little kids, and I know because we all lived on the same street, they had their sights set on being hockey players. Are you still pinching yourself to see how great they're doing? Oh, yes. I, I mean, uh, I can't get over it. It's just uh, surreal sometimes to think that they're, they're, you know, when you see them out there on the ice, you don't re- realize that they're playing in the NHL. But, you know, uh, 
I don't know. Alex always talked about it going up, that he was, you know, going to play in the NHL. And uh, ever since they played hockey with uh, Adam and the Avalon Celtics and Extreme, like, uh, that was, he was always focused that that was his goal, you know. Um, so, um, I and to see it there to now, it's really exciting to watch him play. Uh, there's a picture floating around of Alex wearing a shirt saying future NHLer, which is really quite something. So, tell us a little bit about Alex as a little boy. I'm familiar with him. He's a lovely young man. But I guess Alex, much like some of Sean's friends, like me and Nikki, great kids. Um, well... <laughs> When he was a little boy, I mean, uh, he was always playing hockey, but I used to try to get him into singing. I, I'll have something here from Alex that maybe uh, might give you an idea of sort of our bonding as a, a grandmother and uh, grandson. Um, one time he was going to school, he was only 10 years old, and uh, the, the, he had to write a letter about the most supportive grandmother award. So I have some of the letter here, but I'm not reading at all because some of it, I mean, all grandmothers do what they, we all love to do stuff for our grandchildren. But some of it is funny. He says, um, he says, you start with my nan is super nice. She cares about me a lot. and she, She's gone to pretty much all my games. Maybe she has missed 20 games since I started playing, including when I've gone out of the province. Most time my nan comes with me when I go away to play hockey. She loves it that much, and sometimes she even pays. This is a letter he had to give to this committee. My nan also teaches me singing. We don't have a set time for our lessons because I could always have hockey or soccer or uh, always have to cancel. So whenever I don't have something, nan would always fit me in. My nan is very understanding and flexible around my schedule. And then he says, she entered me in three classes in the Qantas Music Festival, and that was $16 per class. And she has also get to get two accompanists, and that can be very costly. <laughs> what a doll. The, the last thing on the letter, he says, I would like to talk about generosity. My nan was sick for the last month, and her doctor recommended not going to see any hockey or soccer games. She was so disappointed, but she still snook up, up to a lot of them. <laughs> oh, my. It, it, they're just such great memories. And so the family's very musical, uh, Sean and Steve, and especially Karen and Kelly. And that, I guess uh, Kay's daughter, Lauren, is doing amazing things in the world of music. So Yes, yes. Lauren just graduated uh, from Mount Allison with her degree in music. And uh, she's hoping this summer now to get a job on the Carnival Cruise Lines as in the entertainment business. So um, that's wonderful, too. And uh, as... Uh, Taylor is, uh, she's also going to university, and Taylor's great. She's, she loves to do the rock band stuff. She's, she's musical as well. Let's not leave Abby out of the conversation because sometimes yeah. it gets lost in the shuffle because Alex is just knocking it out of the park as an NHLer, but Abby has had a tremendous run. In her freshman season at Boston College, she was Rookie of the Year for the school, for all of the sports in the school, Rookie of the Year for the, the conference itself. She's yeah. doing amazing things, and she's a lovely young girl too. Talk about Abby's career and how she's progressed. Well, uh, 
um, Abby, as you know, started the play. Once Alex started the play, she was going. She wasn't going to be left out. And uh, years ago, when they were uh, playing hockey, of course, um, Sean was coaching, and he had Alex and Abby were both on the same team. So that's one of my better memories because it was really nice to look down and see your family there with your coach, your son, and to see Abby and Alex on the same team when they were in Adam B. And then uh, later, Abby went on to play with the uh, Alvalon Celtics, and she was with the Pee Wee, but she always played with the boys, as you know, because um, that's where she uh, could, you know, improve her skills and get stronger in the game. And um, so, uh, and again, she was in all kinds of tournaments. We went to um, different, the Moncton tournaments and in Nova Scotia, and at one time in PEI, we uh, won the, cha- the cup uh, in, in PEI, and I think Sean was coaching that year. So I have a lot of a lot of memories with Abby. Were you watching the game tonight, Dan? I'd probably go over to Sean's and watch it. <laughs> <laughs> like you would. There's going to be a lot of Newhook jerseys floating around that neighborhood, and rightfully so. I, I know it's surreal for you, you and your family, the same way it is for all of Sean and Paula's and the entire group, that all of us that grew up, and everyone from around the province who's been supportive of the boys and girls, or pardon me, of Alex Nabby, which I think is probably really encouraging for you, Sean, Paula, and everyone else. Really appreciate you making time for us this morning. Would you like to say anything else before we say goodbye? Um, no, I'd just like to say that, um, you know, whoever wins tonight, both teams are, are, are great players. I mean, Tampa has been the champions, uh, Stanley Cup winners for three years, so they're not going to go out easily. And But for people in Newfoundland and Canada and America, uh, the States, we've these games have been such a therapeutic diversion for us because, you know, with the COVID and the Ukraine war and the battered economy and gun violence and here we are we're able to get away from all that for a couple of hours and then sit down and watch the wonderful Stanley Cup so I think uh, it'll be wonderful no matter who who wins that they've given us such great pleasure and such enjoyment the past few weeks. Here, here. Great to have you on the show Anne. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. It's Anne Newhook. She's the grandmother to, of course, Alex and Abby Newhook and her other grandchildren, as we got to some of them as well. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Barry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. Patty, uh, I think an email earlier this week about the uh, food fishery, or more specifically the... Uh, the boat limit in that food fishery. Uh, you recall about two years ago, I, uh, I uncovered the uh, truth about the boat limit through my investigation and discovered that the boat limit was actually not a limit at all. The limit is actually five fish per person per each boat person. Uh, I'm sorry. The, the maximum is five fish per person per each per person per four for each person on board in the boat. So if there's one person's five fish, two people's ten fish, three people's fifteen fish. In the past, if it was any over uh, three people, it would be fifteen. Uh, in the email that I sent you, uh, the senior DFO official points out that if there's any more than th- uh, three people aboard the boat, the 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 limit is five fish per person. So if there's four people in the boat, it's twenty fish. Five people in the boat is twenty-five fish. Um, so that goes against what we always thought that we understood about it. Um, I had a question on my Facebook page: Is this still um, 
is this still in effect? Because it was two years ago that I posted the uh, interview on CBC, CBC Radio broadcast about the food fishery. So I contacted the uh, DFO uh, on Monday and Tuesday. Said they sent me the email, which I posted on our Facebook page. And as of last night, it had over 500 shares, Patty. Yeah, I read part of the email here live on the show, actually. Oh, I'm sorry I missed it. Thank you very much. That's a very interesting email. And I will point out, that, Patty, that you know my interest in the whole thing is, is not uh, to get more fish or anything. It's just create equal opportunity, especially with the price of gas these days. And another example, too, Patty, I use is that if there's 5% wharf, according to the old regulation, three will go out and two, and two would wait, and the other two would go out afterwards. Uh, for conservation, Patty, the, you know, what difference does it make if it's one trip or two trips? It's the end result is still 25 fish for the five people the the way it used to be if the if the if the tree just went out and when the boat came back in processed fish and to go back out again well maybe the boat owner might have another uh, might have something come up maybe might have to go to work maybe petty and not and not surprisingly the wind just came up and the weather is bad and now it's not safe to go out and that's why I, you know, for the first time ever, thought that maybe the tag system makes a bit more sense than I thought it used to, because no one wants to be told what to say and what to do and how many fish you can catch and log books and the like. But if I get a nice fine day and I got 25 tags, I go out and get me 25 cod, even though that's, you know, a bit of a stretch sometimes, possibly depending on where you fish, then it's a pretty efficient, economical way to do things. But yeah, I did read the email out. They say that, you know, they still recommend people don't abuse the system. And they talk about the fact that everyone on the has to be actively fishing for the cod, I think, is if I remember correctly. But how does that get determined? You know, now hopefully, what we don't see is too many people in boats that are not equipped to handle so many people just because we now know that you won't be charged with a crime if you bring in uh, 30 cod with the six fishermen or six fisher people on the boat. Understandably so, Patty. And the thing about that is, though, is that if you uh Modern day boats now have capacity plates, and the capacity plate tells you the maximum size engine horsepower, the maximum weight, and also the maximum number of passengers. So if you exceed the passengers, you can be charged for that. Oh sure, but I mean, uh, okay, fair enough. Uh, you know the point I was trying to make, but anyway, go ahead. And not to mention the morality part of it either, taking out people and risking everybody's life by doing so. Well, unfortunately, we've seen that uh, exact yes. circumstance happen many times. Yes, of course. And uh, uh, I th- I, I'm not sure if there's been a uh, drowning fatality in the food fishery as of late, but, uh, you know, other drownings, of course. But, uh, you know, this is a – I think it's a, it's a good measure. I think it's a fair thing. And there are people, Patty, a lot of people, and I have to mention, well, I, you know, I'm nervous. I don't think that I want to do this. And that's perfectly okay. I'm not, I'm not encouraging people to do it. I'm just pointing out what, what you know, the, what was hidden away from us. Yeah, I don't know either. Um, so people just play it safe, and it opens up on the 3rd, of course, next week. And you know, hopefully people are responsible and don't, you know, it's not the round trip all day long, every day, just because you can and you hope you don't get caught. But the boat limit issue has been settled and solved once and for all. And I've actually shared that portion of the email with several people who said, can you send me that? I think they probably want to have it in their back pocket so they can say, well, this is what DFO says. So anyway, we'll leave it at that. Yes, of course. Of course. Um, Patty, the, uh, we still haven't received any word. I heard Paul White on the, uh, talking with you earlier this week about the River Guardians. 
And it's very, I got to say, you know, it's very distressing, it's very disappointing that, you know, that DFO is not paying more attention to this to uh, to make the correction, to uh, to make the system more efficient, to protect the wild Atlantic salmon. And yet here again is uh, Minister, DFO Minister Murray talking about uh, sending more money to uh, to uh, uh, the British Columbia and, and, and getting the open net pens out of the water in two years' time or so. And yet over here, <clears throat> not a word, not a thing, nothing. So I guess that's what you know, goes show what Ottawa really thinks Newfoundland and Labrador well, there's, is a hard thing to say. There's two distinct different sets of rules anyway. Even if you look out in British Columbia where there's a ban and nothing here regarding any sort of approach that they're taking politically and or regulatory uh, regimes in that province. So I don't know why there would be two different approaches taken for the same industry in the same country. I've just never quite understood that. And I've, I and I point out too, Patty, that you know, yes, we are one great country. We have two beautiful coastlines, but yet, uh, but yet, we see it seems that there's two two, two sets of rules for us, and uh, we're on the lower end. And uh, you know, it seems that the only way anything happens for us is that if we pick up sink or become loud about it. Yeah, I mean, there's, they manage the fishery uh, entirely differently on the west coast, not only aquaculture but in the wild fishery as well. I appreciate the time, Barry. Thanks a lot. Uh, Patty, I'd just like to say one more thing uh, that's to, to the general public, uh, pedestrians and drivers, about the uh, about that Bannerman Park there on Military Road. You got the ice cream parlor, you got the crosswalk, you got the lights, you got the swim pool. There's a lot of lot of pedestrian traffic. I just like to say that you know I drove through yesterday for pedestrians to be watching out and drivers to be watching out as well. It's a very dangerous situation. There's a high traffic uh, area now, and unfortunately high speed too, unnecessarily so. Thanks for this, Barry. Thank you, Patty. It's always been a pleasure. My pleasure. Take care. Okay, Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break, get back on schedule, we'll come back and talk healthcare. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Uh, line number two. Say good morning to the PC member for Grand Falls, Windsor. Buckins, that's Chris Tibbs. Good morning, Chris. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I hope you're having some good weather on the Avalon as we are here in Central. I can tell you that. We had some summer so far. Well, yesterday afternoon was an absolute scorcher. Same thing today. Really beautiful day. Yeah, it's a fantastic start to the summer. Uh, Patty, before I get into health care, I just want to talk just quickly about a couple of things that are actually positive in my district we are very happy with. And the uh, first one is the Lionel Kellen Hospice is now being renovated. And uh, we should see occupancy within about a year. It's a long process going, but it'll be great for our community here. And I want to thank the board and the fundraising team there. Um, as well as Marathon Gold, they're opening the grand opening of the Grand Falls Windsor office this afternoon. They're doing amazing things. And, of course, our long-term care center is finally open. And uh, I'm hearing very, very positive reviews from the residents and their families. So that's some great things happening in my district. I want to start off with that first. I think it's important. Well, the Lionel Kelland Hospice is extraordinary insofar as how much money they were able to raise. Amazing. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Shelly Wolfrey out here and, and her team have done an absolutely amazing job. And kudos to the community. And they, they've received funds from all over the world, actually, Patty, because they see this is the first community hospice in Newfoundland and Labrador. And we are only too proud to have it right here in Central. And it's right across the street from my office. And I watch the renovations every day. And I'm very proud of it, Patty. There's about 100 of these hospices in the, in the country. And as you rightfully point out, the first one here. And I think you're going to see more of it. It You know, when we talk about palliative care, there's options. And these hospices are one i think there's 10 beds going to be 10 suites in the hospice yes yeah yeah that's right 10 suites and these suites are fantastic again um the uh, the foyer is great the grounds are going to be beautiful it truly is going to be a place to die with dignity and death is a huge part of life as we all know 
That it is, and the Marathon Gold, I mean, there's going to be some big economic opportunities for folks in and around Millertown, and, and that's a good thing. There's also, you know, there's nothing perfect in this world, and gold mining is particularly tricky when we're talking about the tailings and the like and how they separate the gold out, so be interesting to know a bit more about that side because so many people down in the mouth about, you know, the oil and gas sector and some of the less than ideal environmental issues surrounding mining, but there's big economic oppor- opportunity, and hopefully Marathon has a, a safe and effective and efficient and of course profitable run that's a big goal fund so. yeah i think so and i, I mean i meet with people from marathon gold you know every, every couple of weeks and we sit down and chat and i see the plan that they have and uh, it's just going to be a great thing for our province you know between our mining our fishery our oil and gas we can go in the direct in the right direction we just need to give it the attention it deserves that's all um but my my main my main uh, um the purpose for the phone call this morning, Patty, is, of course, the uh, health care crisis, whether government wants to live it or not. And we see diversion after diversion, which uh, a lot, in fact, land right here in Grand Falls, Windsor, which in turn continue to overwhelm our hospital and our staff here. Uh, the issues continue to get worse and worse, Patty, as we can see, whether it be Bonavista, Trapassi, you know, Newest Valley, all over. Uh, so many places continue to free fall. And uh, over the past couple of weeks, Patty, I've seen, uh, I've conducted uh, closed door meetings with many healthcare professionals right here in my district. And I hear the same theme over and over again. And that is nobody or very few people are talking to the boots on the ground. Now, when you, t- when you combine that with the CEO, that doesn't even live in this province, Patty. And this is not a knock against Mrs. Robichaud. This is a knock against government for not finding us a CEO on the ground that can deal with these issues and these problems. I think that's important. So when you combine all that together, Patty, it's a failure. And it is failing um, the people and the healthcare workers right here in Central. And that's not fair to them or the patients. Yeah, I mean, I read that story. It's a little bit confusing. Now, I suppose you have to take all of the comments with a grain of salt regarding the fact that the uh, the authority says that she's still very effective and efficient in her role, even though she resigned a couple of years ago. And at this moment in time, there's no sense even talking about a replacement because if we're on the road to amalgamating the four regional health authorities, then I guess we're just going to leave this position unfilled and just keep moving with the amalgamation process, I assume. I respect that, Patty, but at the end of the day, how long is this process going to take? This process could take years. So right now, our healthcare professionals have to uh, try to conduct meetings whatnot with the CEO that's outside the province. This could take years and years and years, Patty, to implement a one a one healthcare authority. And um, from what I'm, what I'm hearing from the healthcare professionals out here is that they need that sort of leadership, and they need it here. And I know it's a world, of, it's a small world of, uh, of, of uh, you know, people can do stuff through teleconference and whatnot. But we need boots on the ground. We need people here to address those issues, and we don't have them right now. Uh, I'm trying to recall what the timeline is, whether it be from comments coming from the provincial government or health accord. Are we talking two years for the amalgamation to be complete, or am I misremembering that? Sorry, yeah, that, that's what I'm hearing. That's what I'm hearing is two years. Now, okay. that could turn into three years, but you know what? Oh, sure. Who knows? For, 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 a, an, intern, for, for an inpatient services right here in Grand Falls, Windsor, that is on the, uh, on the brink of, of, of collapse, uh, we don't have two years out here. And remember, we are the central location where all of this gets diverted to. A lot of this gets diverted right here. And um, the, 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 the uh, healthcare staff out here, they are extremely overwhelmed at times. And we need to ensure that we take care of them so they can take care of their patients which is, you know, the the public in general. So uh, I wanted to touch on that as well, Patty, and I really appreciate your time. Uh, two more things, Patty, if I could just real quickly here. Um, Gander Academy out in Gander. <clears throat> now, people aren't going to believe this. Gander Academy was built and, and opened up in September. 
they have two charging stations there. Two charging stations. We have teachers in Gander who went out and bought a $100,000 vehicle. Now, this government hung their hat on having charging stations for a greener tomorrow and yada, yada, yada. We've seen it all through our debates into carbon tax. Um, these charging stations have not been turned on, and they will not be turned on. Um, I talked to some teachers, uh, some staff on Monday and Tuesday. They still haven't had them turned on. I've talked to the Department of Environment. I've talked to the Department of uh, Education. And we're being told now that uh, they need to sign some legal waivers and whatnot. My question is, why wasn't this done before? So we have two charging stations now that cannot be used. And that, in my opinion, is absolutely ridiculous. Why can they not be used? Uh, we are being told that um, they, they, there's a legality issue, that they need to sign some sort of waiver, and it wasn't presented to them yet, and they're going to have it done in September. Now, this was Monday. The Department of Environment got back to me on Monday, and this is what they said. And they said, so it's only, they said, it's only two days left, Chris, but we're going to ensure that those are going to get signed in September. I said, wouldn't it be a better message to turn those two charging stations on for the next 48 hours and then address it in September, and they were not turned on, which is absolutely disappointing and disgraceful, in my opinion. I appreciate the time this morning, Chris. Thank you. If, can I one more moment, Patty? Just sure. 30 seconds, okay. if possible. Uh, the other thing is our, our divided highway in Grand Falls, Windsor. Um, we still see on a weekly or biweekly basis people driving in the wrong lane, Patty. This is absolutely terrifying in a 90-kilometer zone. Um, and you have a bend, of course, around Grand Falls, Windsor here. We had a disaster last fall where there was a fatality. Uh, I've, I've addressed this with the minister. I've sent them recommendations. I've told them what I think is the problem was. This issue is still not resolved. Whenever I bring it up in the public or on social media, I get a lot of people say, well, you know what? People need to pay better attention. People need to pay better attention. Well, I ask the people to say that I want to say this to them. If it's one of your loved ones, God forbid, and they're driving the speed limit and they're paying attention and they're in their own lane and they get hit with a head-on collision by somebody who got confused, and especially we come home here, we're going to see a lot of traffic. If somebody gets hit because somebody got confused and went across into the other lane on a divided highway, and that's where they had to stay because you're trapped there at that point, and they get hit head-on, God forbid, are you going to accept that answer, that they, that other driver should have just been paying better attention? I want the minister to address this. It's going to happen again. You wouldn't believe it, Patty. I get photos and phone calls on a weekly basis of people driving in the wrong lane of that divided highway where there's a big wall. Once you're in there, it's a recipe for disaster. So I really want the minister to address this before it happens again because it will happen again. And I want to thank our firefighters who went out uh, this week to, to the call on the Trans-Canada. It was horrifying. We don't need to see it, and we should be taking all the necessary steps to prevent it again. Appreciate the time, Chris. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. It's Chris Tibbs. PC member for Grand Falls, Windsor, Buckins. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Robert. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing great. You? Good. Oh, that's nice to hear. Patty, I, I'm not going to take up a whole lot of your time here this morning, but uh, anyway, uh, I uh, I just want to give a shout-out here to Argentia Gold. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the company Argentia Gold uh, down here in Argentia. It's a, it's a cannabis grow-up uh, locally grown here in, in uh, Argentia, and, and we're having a grand new opening here this morning all day, actually. And I just want to give a shout out and invite anybody out around the area to come in and have a look and uh, and see what uh, what we're all about. And uh, we've got some prizes and giveaways today. Uh, and uh, the other thing, Patty, I just want to give a shout out as well is that we are uh, we are a local uh, owned company. 
and we employ uh, roughly over 25 local people in the area of our gentian, Brazentian, Jersey side. So, uh, I mean, well, you know, we hang our head on that. And we're very, uh, very happy to be able to provide uh, uh, the opportunity for people to provide for their families in, in this field. So, uh, we just want to give a shout out. Invite anybody else to invite everybody to come along uh, if they're in the area and. Uh, we're going to be giving away some prizes and some hot dogs and hamburgers, and we're just going to make it a, a, a real uh, a nice day for everybody. So I, I just wanted to uh, share that with you this morning. Uh, I don't know much about your company. I think you're the the sales manager, possibly. Are you, Robert? Right. Okay. So I know you got a pretty big facility, eighty or ninety thousand square feet. So how much t- can you produce a month, a year? Oh, uh, Patty, uh, we're quite, you know, we we deal with quite a bit. And like I said, we are, are, uh, we locally employ the people and we do, uh, you know, we package and uh, we do everything right from scratch here in the facility. So uh, I'm not sure the the numbers, I'd be uh, just guessing on that. But uh, we're, we're, we're fairly busy, and uh, we're just proud to be locally, and uh, we want to push that out there, Patty. This might be a silly question, but do all the uh, production uh, organizations like yours, is, does everyone have a direct contract with the NLC, and that's where all the product goes, or how does that work? Uh, you're correct. Uh, and that happened uh, probably about a year ago, Patty, most of the time. Uh, before that, uh, it, it didn't go through NLC. But anything now, it's been... Uh, Ship to NLC, NLC, and people place their orders to Newfoundland Local Board Corporation. That's how that's done. I appreciate making time, uh, and uh, congratulations, and good luck with the grand opening. Well, Patty, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity today, and I want to, uh, again, give a shout-out and invite everybody to come along, and I want to uh, wish you a great weekend. Same to you. Take care, Robert. Cheers. Okay, cheers. Bye-bye. All right, let's uh, go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the province's consumer advocate. That's Dennis Brown. Good morning, Dennis. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Morning to you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So you sent me an email saying various uh, energy-related matters, I believe, is the uh, subject line. Uh, Pardon me, various ratepayer issues. Where do we start? Uh, We can start with uh, with the Court of Appeal. We've been trying to get into the court to deal with Newfoundland Power's capital budgets. Their capital budgets are way over the top, and the POB is not giving full hearings to capital budgets. We're into paper hearings, if you can understand that term, probably an oxymoron of sorts. But um, So you get to ask questions concerning their budgets, but you're not allowed to ask for a witness to come forward to testify in reference to it, nor are you allowed to call a witness. So everything is done on paper. We've been opposed to that for quite some time. We've gone to the court to try to get them to review it, uh, but uh, we didn't get the right answer there. Uh, the, we need leave to get into the court, uh, which is another issue which ought to be addressed, but uh, they won't give us leave to, to deal with it. So um, we are getting... Uh, uh, decisions that are disappointing to ratepayers, and if I can just give you some idea of the scope of the problem, in 2005, prior to 2005, there were full public hearings at the PUB for capital budgets. In 2005, the board changed its, proce- its procedures, 
and the parties and the consumer advocate of the day uh, agreed to the changes. And uh, since that time, just to give you an idea, uh, we're into these paper hearings. In 2005, Newfoundland Power's capital budgets were $49 million annually. Today, they've gone to $111 million, a 126% increase, 5.2% a year increase, year over year. I mean, uh, something has to be done here. The system is clearly broken, and it comes back to the fact that the board is not hearing these cases. We're not giving the capital budgets the vigilance that is required, particularly in this time of rape mitigation. Well, when the capital budgets will play an active role in any rate hike applications, how can they be exempt or omitted from the process? They've gone into uh, uh, capital budget. They issued capital budget guidelines in 2005, and uh, which allowed for paper hearings. Uh, uh, they always stated there could be public hearings if required. Well, we've asked for public hearings uh, two consecutive years now, and they refuse to give them to us. The PUB does. So, uh, and making matters worse, in 2005. They put these capital budget guidelines and didn't revise any of the the guidelines. So we're into the same capital budget guidelines from 2005 till now. It's only uh, in the... uh, in the next year is uh, the new capital budget uh, our new capital budget guidelines uh, uh, being put into place and that was at our request the board had set on its hands on the issue and uh, it seems to me that uh, this entire this entire matter needs uh, a re-examination because we will not have rape mitigation as long as Newfoundland Power's capital budget spending is out of control. So uh, now help is on the way. I should tell ratepayers this. We're, we are getting help. Uh, the government has announced a full review and there's a review committee of uh, ministers or deputy ministers or officials from various departments, uh, and they're reviewing entirely the Public Utilities Board and the legislation uh, around the Public Utilities Board. And they're looking at things that the commissioner uh, suggested in the Muskrat Falls inquiry. He suggested that uh, performance-based rate-making could be introduced here, which will help ratepayers. Um, they're looking at things like the terms for the Public Utilities Board. I don't know if people are aware, but Public Utilities Boards, there are four commissioners down there. It only takes two to hear a case, but uh, inevitably the four of them turn up to hear a case. And as an aside, um, there hasn't been a dissent among the four of them since 1990 when Andy Wells was a commissioner. So they've all agreed. They've all agreed. They all agree on everything since 1990, the whole four commissioners. Now, you tell that to someone who's a lawyer, and we're used to going to court, and there used to being dissents from various judges, and uh, people are bewildered as how can this be? It seems to me the capital budgets aren't getting the scrutiny they deserve. So the government has launched this um, uh, this uh, 
study of the board. They're looking at the terms for commissioners. Right now, a commissioner can be appointed for 10 years, and then they can get another 10 years. Well, that's 20 years with the same commissioner. I mean, how do you refresh or reinvigorate the Public Utilities Board if you have the same people around for 20 years? Okay, so not just the issue of you can maybe have back-to-back 10-year terms, but with the capital budgets not receiving public hearings, the ability for you to call witnesses, what have you, you know the process inside and out. For the layperson, what's the real-life implication for me and my bill? The real-life implication is uh, since since, uh, 2005, the board has given Newfoundland Power every cent that they've asked for in their capital budgets. Uh, it, over the period, it, uh, it's over $1.5 billion. So they've gotten $1.5 billion of our money over this period of time without a word being spoken. It's really unbelievable. So that's how it reflects on your bills. The more they spend in capital expenditure, the more you're going to pay on your bill. Pretty much. Oh, so you had various ratepayer issues. Have they all been uh, touched on so far, Dennis, or do you want to change to a, a different one? Okay, I just want to uh, inform people that uh, in July of this year, uh, normally uh, there's an adjustment uh, because of uh, fuel spent at Holyrood. And uh, we could have gotten a rate decrease of 6.2%. However, um, the fact of the matter is that Muskrat Falls and the costs associated with it are raining down on us. So um, the, there's a new order in council in place which uh, requires now that any um, uh, stability in rates. So therefore, what we will do, we won't see any rates decreased and we won't see any rates increased uh, over this coming year. So the money that uh, we would have gotten, the 6.2% decrease, uh, goes into a fund to assist the payment of rates for Muskrat Falls. And uh, uh, everyone, uh, otherwise what could happen, you could get a 6.2% decrease, and in two months' time, uh, Hydro will be in looking for an increase to, uh, to pay some Muskrat Falls costs, because where some Muskrat Falls power is coming down to the island now, uh, they are looking to get paid for what we are using. Uh, I think that's the theory behind it. I suppose. Uh, I know this isn't necessarily your ballywick as the advocate, but do you have any thoughts on the 2041 panel and then what came out of nowhere, this Churchill River Energy Analysis Team? Well, the 2041 panel was uh, our recommendation to the commissioner at Muskrat Falls and the Muskrat Falls inquiry. We, you see, electricity is planned 20 years out. So 2041, well, this is 2022. There's planning. The planning has to be done now, and it has to be done uh, by uh, uh, our hydro company, by Quebec's, and uh, Uh, figure out where we're going with this because we have to plan into 2041. So the commissioner recommended, he took our recommendation. He said, yes, that's a worthwhile recommendation that a committee should be formed to study uh, where we're headed into 2041. And that 
that committee was announced uh, about a month or two ago, and it has some competent, capable people on it, uh, one of whom is Dr. Jim Fien, uh, the economist who's done so much for electricity uh, users in the province, and uh, he has uh, assisted uh, consumers, and he assisted, he's assisted me big time in the work uh, before the board. And so he's on the panel, and there are others, So, um, but competent, good, capable people. So it'll be interesting to see what recommendations they make to government as to the way to proceed in dealing with 2041. That's a good thing. Yeah, Dr. Fian, not much attention given to his uh, thoughts on price elasticity to our detriment, I would suggest. And yeah, also, you have that right. Yeah, and also chaired by Carl Smith, who, and you're right, there's, uh, there's good people with really yeah, interesting Carl backgrounds. Smith, who was with Newfoundland Power and Hydro, very, very good person, the top people around this panel. Yeah, Dave Vardy, I believe, is also on it. David Vardy is on it. Yeah. He will be, it will be helpful and should be helpful to the people of the province. Do you happen to know what the Churchill River Energy Analysis Team does or is? No, Me I neither. haven't looked at that in particular. Uh, right now, we're in the process of writing our submissions to uh, the, uh, the group in government who are um, who oversee the Public Utilities Board and its legislation. We're writing a submission on that, and uh, uh, Dr. Fien is involved with that, and uh, we have an expert, uh, Doug Bowman, who's worked uh, with consumer advocates here uh, for uh, decades, and he's worked where he's uh, been all over the world. He's assisting us. By the way, uh, uh, Doug Bowman tells me that in Vietnam there are public hearings for capital budgets in Vietnam. <laughs> Think about it. We'll leave it there. That is unbelievable. Okay. Th thank you. All the best. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. It's Dennis Brown of the province's consumer advocate. Uh, before we get to the news, let's get to Joe on one. Good morning, Joe. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Tommy. How you doing? Doing great. How about you, Joe? Not too bad. Uh, I, I'm 97, and uh, I'm, I'm receiving uh, support from uh, caregivers. And, and I hadn't seen none since uh, March. And I, I want to talk about it. You know, when I broke my hip in 2018, and uh, I, I want to talk about the, the support. Now, I had no support since, since March passed. So how frequently were you getting support prior to this? I was getting there for uh, uh, two hours a day, seven days a week. I was, but now since since March, I, I'm not receiving anything. They, they, they can't find uh, the, the, the people to support me. So they just stopped coming. Pardon? They just stopped coming. Yeah. And so, have the organization that was providing the care, whether it be Eastern Health or a private group, oh, uh, caregivers. Okay, and so what are they saying? Well, they they, they can't find no, uh, um, nobody to uh, support me, and and I'm been here alone by myself since March. Well, so they don't have even a staff member that they can use. So, what are the options? What are you going to have to do here, Joe? I know. I don't know either. Um, so, have you tried to deal directly with the with Eastern Health, for instance, to talk about getting some support? Uh, uh, I, I talked to a new woman, 
come on, they're looking at uh, people like me. It came out there recently about, about a month ago. I, I forget her name now. Are you talking about the new advocate, Susan Walsh? Yeah, new advocate. Okay, I'll tell you what. I can When I put you on hold, we'll see if David can give you some contact information for Susan Walsh. I'll, is it okay if I share your phone number with some people I know that are in that business? No. Is that okay? My, my telephone number? Yeah, do you mind if I share it with some people I know who are involved with home care? Yeah. Uh, my telephone number, do you want that? No, I have it. Do you, is it okay by you if I share it with folks who I know who are involved in, health, in home care? Perfect. Okay. I'm going to put you on hold. David will give you a number, and I'm going to see if I can get you someone to give you a shout. Oh, and that was David I was talking to, and I had, I, I couldn't him out of time because I left my hearing aid in my pocket. No worries at all, Joe. I'm going to put you on hold, speak with David, and I'll see if I can get someone to give you a call. Okay. Good okay. Now. Thanks, Joe. All the best. Yeah, we got to figure that out. Uh, let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the CEO at Food First NL. That's Josh Smee. Good morning, Josh. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Nice to talk to you. Great to have you on again, sir. Really appreciate your time. So, your organization is launching the Capital City's very first food action plan. What is it, and is it fit to eat? I would hope so. Uh, it's been a long time cooking. Uh, so we've been doing work uh, leading what we call the community-led food assessment. So basically a big old community consultation process uh, in St. John's around food now. For it's, uh, We're into the second year of that. Uh, and one of the things that's coming out of it now, uh, we've done the kind of uh, the question asking, the talking, we've done a report. But this is an action plan that's meant to put some structure around what we all do on food going forward. And so that's not just for food first. The plan is meant to guide all the different work that's happening from a whole bunch of different organizations uh, around food. So if from the city of St. John's, there's a, a St. John's Food Policy Council in town that uh, the city and, and Food First co-chair, and there's lots of other organizations doing work to strengthen food. And so we're trying to put a little bit of a blueprint around it to say, here's where the here's what the community wants to see happen over the next few years. That's what's in that plan such as so there's a few things uh there it breaks out into four big themes one around is good food policy and planning so that's getting community members more engaged around food policy getting things changed like uh school food programs and local food policy there's another round around uh getting food local and accessible foods so that's things like supporting um uh, local growing and, and the farms that are within st john's but also uh, a mobile food market pro- project that's launching uh, launching this year. Um, then there's uh, connections through food programs. So we heard a lot about how much more there needs to be done to coordinate all the different food things that are happening and map them and make it accessible to know what's up. And then youth raising awareness. We talked to a ton of young people who are really excited about um, doing work to make people more aware around food and food systems and what's happening with food. And so bringing more youth into, into the food movement in St. John's over the next few years is that final theme there. What's that going to mean realistically or pragmatically for the residents? 
So there's a few things that are already on the go. Uh, what this is meant to do is, uh, for anyone who wants to work with food, we're hoping they look at this action plan and say, okay, here's where we could fit in. Um, so there's a few things that are launching right away. Um, we're taking the lead at Food First, uh, for example, on a mobile food market. So one thing that we heard a ton about uh, in the consultations that we did for this was uh, geographic barriers to food access. If you live in St. John's, especially folks uh, on the lower end of the income scale who don't have a private vehicle, getting to the food that you need can be really hard, uh, winter or summer. And so uh, we're taking a page from a bunch of other cities' books, uh, Halifax, Toronto, lots of others, uh, and we're exploring what it would look like to do a mobile market that came to people. So you might have uh, a market show up in your neighborhood every so often and, and provide some access to affordable uh, affordable food uh, in an accessible way. And, and that helps kind of bridge some of those gaps uh, in the food system. Uh, there's loads of other ones. That's probably the biggest piece that's going to start up immediately. Uh, and then there's other ones like uh, a lot of work around food policy. One thing that the action plan flags really loudly is that right now we don't really have a formal coalition around uh, anti-poverty work. So lots of us are talking about it. It comes up in food all the time, but the action plan makes it really clear that people want to see that built out so that all the different folks working to push around issues of poverty work together more closely, and I think we'll see some movement on that one, too. So, uh, of course, when we talk about a local uh, local mobile food market, that will tr- uh, deal with access. How's it going to deal with cost? So that's one of the things we need to design in. Uh, there's a couple of ways that mobile food markets typically do this. Uh, in some places, when you have them on the ground, what ends up happening is they provide access to subsidized uh, subsidized food. So, for example, there's a few mobile food markets around that have some funding from their health systems. Uh, so that might help folks who might not otherwise be able to afford certain food options to, to keep those options affordable. Uh, the other thing you sometimes see, and I think will be a part of this one, is that mobile food markets can also be um, help support local food programs. So uh, meal programs and, and food banks, they, they buy their food in the grocery store uh, one person by one person. And, and we've seen um, in other cities, these markets end up serving those programs too. So they're buying in bulk and are able to provide more food variety on their dollar. Uh, so I think that's one of the big, big things we want to figure out is what is what do neighborhoods around the city want to see at this market uh, and how can we pull some resources in to make those things affordable for folks. Um, it's already a bit more affordable if you don't have to you know, get in a cab and go to the grocery store, but for I think sure. we can do a fair bit on that. Uh, and for folks who want to have a look at it, the website is uh, foodstjohns.ca forward slash action plan. I'd just like to get a couple of status updates if you don't mind here this morning, Josh. Absolutely. This one is the institutional work. Farm to school, farm to healthcare. Where are we? A couple of we're a couple of places. So uh, on the healthcare piece, the the most active work right now is actually happening in Labrador. There's a big project with Labrador Grenfell Health around um, integrating local and traditional foods uh, into the health system and using the health system to improve access to those foods. It's called the Anchor Collaborative, and there's some really really interesting stuff happening up there um, that we're helping support. And so I think the most active movement on food and healthcare is definitely 
ultimately <clears throat> with Labrador Grenfell Health and the Indigenous partners uh, around that project. Uh, so that's thinking about, you know, it's uh, for patients in the system, how can we improve their outcomes, give them food that they're familiar with, but also use the, the healthcare system to really strengthen local local procurement. And there is also a province-wide conversation discussion the government's having around what you call social procurement, right? Building in um, social value into tenders so that uh, there might be a chance in that system to um, put a little bit more weight on on buying local or on investing in local food production. So I think that's a there's a couple of big moves happening there. On the school front, there's a lot of shifts happening. Um, you know, in many cases, we've seen um, we've seen the private providers of school food pull out of a lot of schools over the last little while. You know, it's, it's always been tricky for them from a cost perspective and COVID hit them hard. So I think there's some opportunity to, to rethink how we're doing food. And there have been some, some investments coming into school food out of the, the sugar sweet and beverage tax. And so um, there is work happening. And then nationally for the first time, there's a commitment to some kind of uh, national school food program. So we're the only country, only wealthy country, that doesn't have one uh, and finally there is this national commitment we'll see what that looks like on the ground but it's it's more movement than we've seen in a lot of years around school food uh, excellent news uh, let me bounce this off you you're in food i'm not i throw these ideas around whether or not they make sense i don't know but i i've been talking about you know support from whether it be at different levels of government or and the private sector for community gardens and greenhouses if we have an issue with reliability of supply and access points what have you do any of my thoughts on that front make any sense yeah, I do think it it, it, it matters, right? And, and there, we don't really know how much. That's one interesting question. There is some some work being done. We don't know how much of the food that is eaten in this province is, is stuff that people grow themselves, produce themselves. But it can really, for folks who have access, uh, it can make a huge difference in your food budget, and especially we're seeing now um, with the cost of uh, purchased food rising so sharply. For, for a lot of households, access to growing your own food does make a big difference uh that's not universal there's lots of folks who are low-income families who just don't have time or space to do it um but it is an important part of the mix and and uh i think there's uh, there is still space you know we've seen more and more resources uh given over to supporting community gardens in the last couple of years which is i think it's a good thing there's there's definitely work that can still happen and to to expand access to those and uh, and for folks to get them off the ground and, and keep them going and run them properly there's there's lots of resources out there so no I, I do think they do have an important uh, role and especially now right as we as we see the sort of the cost of living crisis really hit people I think that's going to be an added reason uh, you know it's harder to stretch a dollar the way we used to whether it be the private citizens and or your group or different food banks what have you uh, do you happen to know if there's any work being done in the province to strike arrangements like they have, for instance, in Nova Scotia between the big uh, grocery store chains and the, the Costco's of the world? When food is arriving at its best before date, where it sometimes just simply ends up in the garbage, we put it in the hands of food banks and organizations like yours for distribution because if it says best before uh, the 1st of July, doesn't mean that you can't eat it on the 2nd. 
Yeah, so there's a couple of programs in the province that do it. Um, for consumers, there's uh, a, an app called, in which many folks listening, there's an app called Flash Food. Uh, and what that app does is the, the store puts up things that would otherwise be, be getting, uh, that's still good, but would soon be going off. And you can purchase them at a really deep discount. Uh, so that one is established in the province. I, I believe it's the Dominion stores that use that one. And then there's um, a food rescue charity. Uh, so it's Food Rescue that they are operating here and the way they work is exactly that that uh, businesses um, basically use their app like a dating service so the business says we have 150 loaves of bread here um, does anyone want them and then food programs log on to the app and claim uh, that food and so that's been getting more and more uh, usage I think the the biggest one the, and the biggest users of that kind of thing are, are the programs so people you know cooking up really large-scale meals meals who can really, you know, deal with those kind of bulk donations. But you are seeing that. Uh, and that is, I think, going to be um, technology is helping make those things easier because both of those ones, the, the core of them is is this app that makes the connection and provides some, they provide some insurance coverage and things like that. Uh, so it's just been, it's much easier now to run a program like that than it was. I'm glad I asked because I had no idea yeah, that was go. in existence. Yes. Uh, always good to have you on the show, Josh. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Patty. Always, uh, always God for chat. Take good care. Bye-bye. That's Josh Smee. Boy, he's terrific. He's the CEO at Food First NL. Time for a break. Do not go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Eleanor, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Fine today. Thanks. How about you? I'm great. Beautiful sunny day out there today. First day officially of summer, I guess, after the last day of school was yesterday. So I wanted to congratulate all the teachers and all the parents and guardians and all the kids who made it through the school year and now um, welcome them to summer and I thought what better way to start off the summer than to come and visit us at Manuel's River. Uh, we've got a lot of things happening this summer at Manuel's River in addition to just going for a beautiful walk out on our trail system. I know there's some people who will probably take a little dip of their toe into that beautiful refreshing river water and We've got lots of activities uh, for this big come home year as well. So we've got uh, free mapping Mondays happening every Monday afternoon from 3 o'clock to 4.30. We have a big, giant floor map of Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, it's a lot of fun. You get to come in, and it's eight and a half by 11 meters. So you take off your shoes, and you get to wander around on the map and find all the different interesting place names and do some scavenger hunts with us that's free because of the funding we've received from the come home year so if you're from here or if you're coming home from away or if it's your first time coming home uh, to Newfoundland this year is a good time to take advantage of that map and Patty I was out for a walk yesterday because we've been having that beautiful summer weather and I got the chance to chat with my neighbor who's in his 80s and he tells me that um back when he was a young fella that you know it was tradition for a lot of people in and around St. John's to spend all their time off their fun recreation leisure time especially during the summers out at the river coming out for picnics and fishing and berry picking and boil ups and maybe a swim and uh, he said that you know a lot of people used to come out and actually camp along the river for the whole summer so that sounds like a, a delightful way to spend your summer and he said that back uh, then, you know, they didn't really just have the regular tents like we would have at the store today. He had to, like, use trees to make pegs and posts for his tent, and they used 
um, old potato sacks and things covered in the tarp that their dad would have had um, instead of a regular old tent. So some things have changed, but some things have stayed the same in that it's it's still a great spot to come and, and uh, have some fun in, in the sun and enjoy that weather and get outside. Absolutely. And not to derail the good times and the positive vibes, but the trail was the victim. I don't know if that's trails can be Mm -hmm. victims of some Mm -hmm. pretty vile racist graffiti i mean all the work you do to make the trail walkable and enjoyable and then for this to happen is really just ridiculously poor pathetic yeah yeah we've had a hard uh, couple of days there on the river for sure we um you know we're a small staff we're a registered charity we're a not-for-profit really dedicated bunch of people who care so much about the environment we care about our beautiful fossil site that it's our uh, job to protect we're, we're charged as guardians of of this river valley to take care of all the living things uh, that are there and we see quite a bit of vandalism and also um, you know just stuff in in the form of liver litter and, and and damages in that way and it's very disheartening to people who are trying their very best you know we rely really heavily on funding uh, in the form of grants and donations and fundraisers. And we, we really, really look to our community uh, to help us by volunteering. We've got a regular volunteer, our friend Tom Shepard, um, a local teacher, and every day he is out um, picking up garbage and, and doing his best. He's just one example of our many Trail Keeper members who who are trying their, their darndest to, to do their best to, to give everything they have to make sure that the trails are clean and safe and comfortable and enjoyable for people to, to get out on. And the trails are free for everybody to use. You know, we want to encourage everyone to come out. And over 300,000 uh, trail users in the year last year uh, on our last trail count. So we know that lots of people are using the trails, but we know it's also that with that freedom comes the responsibility to take care uh, of the trails that you're using. So it's everybody's job to do their best to keep them clean, pick up litter, don't throw litter in the first place. Please don't, um, you know, use our beautiful outdoor classroom and our other resources for any kind of um, vandalism or or way to spread a terrible message. We we want um, it to be welcoming and safe for everybody. So we're hoping that if you are interested in helping, you'll come and, and volunteer with us, be a trail keeper, but also you can support uh, the very hard work that our small staff is trying and their, our, our volunteers are trying their very best to do as well as um, the Grand Concourse Doherty, you know, they, they've been doing some work uh, to try and repair damages that we saw from flooding on the trail, and they've been distracted from their work to have to go clean up the vandalism. So we're trying to keep them at the task that they have at hand, and the way to do that is to make sure that everybody is doing their part to, to just, you know, be respectful and uh, be safe and, and not to let that kind of stuff happen in our community. And and then to, you know, give back by by maybe even uh, supporting us through uh, a donation if you have the space and, and the finances to do that financially or, you know, your time, your energy, that counts as well. We, we'll, we'll take whatever we can get. It's a big, big undertaking to, to protect the river and, and to educate people about it. And we want um, everyone to be involved. I and appreciate this, what, Eleanor. I'm sorry, finish yeah. your thought. 
I was just going to say one other thing that, that lots of people can do, and it doesn't just benefit us, but it might even benefit you uh, if you're interested, is to buy a ticket for our Bobber race. This is one of the biggest fundraisers that we do all year. And we used to do a big in-person carnival and physical race where we sent Bobbers on down the river, but we've switched as of uh, 2020 because of the pandemic to an online 50-50 lottery. So if people want to go to bobberrace5050.com or they can go to manualsriver.ca, they can buy their tickets there. They can also give us a call at uh, 834-2099, purchase tickets over the phone. They can drop into the center seven days a week from uh, 10 o'clock to 5 o'clock each day and even till 8 o'clock on Thursday evenings. There'll be someone there to help you uh, purchase a ticket if you would like. And the cool thing about that is if you get your tickets early, we do have an additional prize. In addition to winning half of whatever we raise in the 50-50 lottery, if you buy your ticket before July 12th, you are entered to win uh, the additional early bird prize, which could be $5,000 cash, or it could be, if you choose, a mini manual, which is a little copy of our uh, greenhouse that's in our community garden, and that's built by Sun Valley Greenhouses. They do a great job. It's a beautiful um, little structure there. You're talking to your friend Josh earlier. I heard about food security and making sure everybody has enough to eat. Well, growing your own food, eating locally. That's a wonderful way to support that. And what a way to start the summer to win uh, a mini manual. That would be a, a real cool bonus in addition to maybe even winning the big prize uh, that we'll draw for in September. Good to have you on, Eleanor. Have a nice weekend. Okay, you too. Thank you so much, Patty. Patty and everybody, happy summer. There you go. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going down the boot to Marystown to speak with the Mayor, Brian Keating. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the Mayor of Marystown. That's Brian Keating. Good morning, Mayor Keating. You're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you today, my friend? Top shelf. Thanks for asking. How about you? Oh, good, good. I'm sure you're quite aware. I hear it on the air show many a times uh, about the health care and the disarray the health care is in. And as you're quite aware on the Bjorn Peninsula, uh, we're facing potential cuts with the new blueprint that uh, has come out in the last couple of weeks. Uh, well, I actually came out the day after the house closed. A little convenient, but there it is. Uh, I just want to let all the listeners know uh, on the Bjorn Peninsula and especially our uh, good friends in uh, the house that uh, the Bjorn Peninsula, we had a great rally, as everybody's known, in March. It was probably one of the worst days uh, with heavy rains and gusting winds, but we had over 4,500 residents from the Bjorn Peninsula uh, out there representing all towns. And it was just to show that... Uh, the solidarity on the Bjorn Peninsula, all the communities come together from Allen's Island to Terrenceville and Bjorn, St. Lawrence, Grand Bank, of course, where our major hospitals are uh, located in. And the community has come together under our Joint Community Council Healthcare um, Coalition, which I'm the chair of. Uh, we, j we just wanted to put out there that this is out uh, and we're not forgetting uh, that we're going to keep continuing fighting. Uh, we send out a, uh, a request with the Premier now and uh, Minister Hagee and, uh, to come out and visit us in person, not by Zoom, uh, by person. And uh, we're scheduled another major rally for September the 24th. Uh, and I don't know if we should call it a rally because rally cheers people up. It's more of a protest and a stamping of our feet to show that 
the residents on the Bjorn Peninsula, led by all their mayors and councillors, and the residents, of course, that uh, we're not going to stand for losing our hospitals, uh, losing services to our hospitals. I guess we shouldn't say losing our hospitals per se, but losing services that we definitely need. And as you can see in the last several days, uh, just recently, Bonavista had to close down for a while. Whitburn had to close down their hospital for a while. There's ER rooms and services and stuff. The funny thing that I find, Patty, the people that are uh, tasked with coming up with this blueprint, per se, for uh, to modify and to streamline healthcare, are the exact same people that are were requested by the government to recruit doctors and nurses for our health care, which they were completely, for a better terminology, they were a failure at. Well, who, what people are you referring to? Well, it's uh, Dr. Parfey, uh, Sister Elizabeth Davis, uh, Dr. Uh, Minister Hagee. They are uh, the people that came out and were supposed to be doing recruiting, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in the last several years as well, to bring doctors and nurses and recruit medical staff for our uh, districts and for our island. Well, I could be wrong, but I don't think Dr. Parfrey or Sister Elizabeth had any any formal uh, position in the business of recruiting doctors, not to my knowledge, but certainly the, uh, the minister and his department would be actively involved, or at least you would hope they would be. Uh, specifically, Mayor Keith, what inside the blueprint uh, shows erosion of services in your region? I, I read the most of it, but there's just so much to it. It's hard for me to recall every word. Well, I'm glad you said it's so hard. Uh, you you said you read every same self. It's almost like organized confusion, but uh, the terminologies and stuff with the OBS and IC units and day surgeries and stuff and uh, beyond Peninsula healthcare and cutting at uh, the St. Lawrence uh, Memorial Hospital and the Grand Bank, the ER service cutting back to a part-time services. I understand that there's got to be streamlining and some... Uh, I guess realignment of what needs to be done in the healthcare, but anybody can make a flow chart or a graph look whatever way you like. But the biggest thing on the Bjorn Peninsula, where our geographic location is so far away from even Clarenville, you're looking at uh, an hour and a half to two hour drive on the best of conditions. And I'm sure, Patty, you understand that conditions on the Bjorn Peninsula in the winter months. And our winter months is eight months long on the Bjorn Peninsula and mostly all the outports of the Newfoundland. This is not typical just to the Bjorn Peninsula. I know it's going on all over the island. But what did he want the residents and the people out the Bjorn Plinth and these other areas where they're cutting down. In my opinion, and I, I call it my opinion, it's another form of resettlement. And it's uh, and right now we're not getting, we're paying the same taxes for less service. The seniors on the Bjorn Peninsula, they can hardly afford, and you know, with gas and food prices and stuff, how can we afford to spend two or $300 to go to St. John's for a service that we're already getting? And we get no, uh, we're getting no funding, no uh, compensation for this. It's just another tax as well. If I do want to speak free, I think it's another form of taxes for these outports of uh, Newfoundland. Yeah, the implementation, I guess, the... We'll know more uh, when the government and other parties finally start reacting to the document. I'm a little bit surprised with how silent everybody is on the government side in particular. You know, I know it's going to take a while to digest all of it because I tried to read it and it, there was a lot to it. But until we know what recommendations that they're on side with, what they think they're going to do, the time frame for implementation, I mean, there's all this does is really create some worry in some corners because it can be viewed by one guy on the West Coast tells me, 
this is a resettlement plan. So uh, you're telling me that it uh, comes across as an additional form of tax on rural Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. It'd be nice to know what people in positions of authority actually think about it. Well, I'm speaking on behalf of the Dorn Flint's uh, Joint Council as I'm the chair of the... Oh, no, I, I mean provincial politicians, not you or other municipal mayors. You, you know what I mean. People who, act, who are going to be charged with implementing or not, it'd be nice to get some reaction from them so that we can dig in deeper as to what the plan is or what they're going to reject. That's the point I was trying to make. Oh, and I agree with you totally. My biggest, uh, my biggest thing is I'm... I'm a little uncomfortable, even maybe we use the word a little scared of what may happen. It's almost too quiet. Are they going to do this at the the point that uh, it's going to be implemented? You keep it quiet until the action is done. And that's why the residents of the Bjorn Plants are not going to wait. We're uh, reaching out to the minister and we're reaching out to the premier. And we want an informal meeting. in a place meeting with them and make sure that they come and talk to us and we give them our concerns. We already showed them once the solidarity at Bjorn Peninsula. We're going to show them again on the 24th. That's just before the house opens in October. And uh, we're not going to, as the residents and led by all the people of this uh, great Peninsula of ours, that we're not going to take it. We need more input. We, I say down on several, dozens of these, uh, what they called town hall meetings well when you do a zoom meeting and you don't like what you hear it's very easy to get toned out or even turned off i don't think it was fairly done at the time and i understand COVID, but when are we going to stop blaming stuff on COVID and stand up and take responsibilities the responsibility of the provincial government which are the employees of the towns and the people of newfoundland labrador is to take care of your health and welfare of the residents of their island they work for the residents of the island. So all I can say is that if they do not decide to meet with us, I guess we'll have to lay them off in three years' time. Appreciate the time this morning, Mary Keating. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time as well. Take good care. Bye-bye. That's Brian Keating. He's the mayor of the town of Marystown. Final break of the morning and the week when we come back. Jocelyn's in the queue to talk about happy summer. Love that. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Jocelyn. You're on the air. How are you, Patty? Doing fine today. How are you? Not too bad at all. I've been thinking about you because you're going to be gone for the rest of the summer. No, I won't. I'll be gone for a little bit, but I'll be back. Don't go far. (laughs) (laughs) Don't fly anywhere, that's for sure. I got an idea for you because you were talking about reading the health report or the health accord. Yep. Do you know that the iPhone has a voice over and there's a seeing a seeing ai app on the iphone that you can take a picture of the page that you want to read with your eyes and the phone will say done and then it'll read the page out loud to you so you'll help yourself with you don't have to read it the phone will read it for you i didn't know that exists what's the app called Seeing AI app. Okay, I'll have I'll check it out because by the uh, by the end of the day I'm googly eyed because I of read course. a lot. Well, any any mail that you get, it could be a bill or it could be a, a letter from somebody, even if it's a handwritten letter. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be typed. The Seeing AI app deciphers everything. Okay. 
So it's a wonderful app for you for sure, especially now you got a relaxing time and you don't have to work yourself out. You just listen to the app and say, oh, my gosh, this reads it out loud to me. That sounds very helpful. I appreciate yeah. the advice. Just take the picture of the page with the Seeing AI app. Check it for sure. Okay. Ryan says, hello to you and your listeners. I'd like to say that, too, because I think about Simeon. Simeon, check a page. Do you know, Patty, it's been five years ago his son committed suicide. Yeah, he died by suicide. I remember the story. I know. And it's five years ago on June 7th, I think it was. Okay. I wrote it down. I wrote, make notes out all the time. I'm thinking about your teacher wife, okay, and this classroom. I had a daughter in grade six, and all the friends got together in the same classroom. Now, you know friends are one minute they're enemies, next minute they're best friends. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, yes. Mom has a saying for it. Mom got a saying for everything, I think. Mom says, one, you're alone, two is company, three is a crowd, four is too many, and five is not allowed. I added another line that says, my goodness, what a mix when you got six. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah. So the teachers got a challenge when all the, all the girlfriends, especially, are together. Because, you know, if they're one, enemies one minute and the next minute they're arm over shoulders and they're the best of friends. Sometimes that's the case. I grew up with a lot of girls in our house. I have three sisters. Um, so, yeah, I know where you're coming from there, Jocelyn. I really appreciate the advice with the app. I'm going to check it out and hope you have a check great summer. Yes. And I'd say to the kids, I once don't work around here. Haven't you learned your manners yet? And learn to say, may I have, please. Because kids sometimes don't remember their manners. Sometimes. I, I, well, I mean, I can only go by what I yes. see about my crew. I used to say to my daughter, gimme, gimme never gets. Haven't you learned your manners yet? Well, she came back to me when she was in grade 11, I think it was. She stood up. She said, yes, I have very well. Give me now or I'll tell. And I busted her laughing. Who are you going to tell? <laughs> Thanks Give for now. this, Jocelyn. Put a smile on my yes. face. Thank you. Yes. And oh, a vacation for the staycation this year in, in Newfoundland. To anybody out there, of course, it's too far away for you because you're in St. John's. Out in Portobas, just outside, about 10 miles away, is the J.T. Cheeseman Park. And that park is a wonderful park to go to. You have a small falls, you have a big falls, you have a beach that's about one kilometer through the park away kind of thing. And it's the only place in Newfoundland, I think, that you'll see a tree growing out of a rock. Now, this rock is about six foot wide, and I got a picture of it. And right in the middle of the rock, the rock is split. There's a huge tree. And that's at Small Falls in J.T. Cheeseman's Park. So, uh, thanks for the tip and the uh, destination advice, Jocelyn. Off I go. Uh, thanks for this this morning. Have a great weekend. Yes, you too. And have a good summer. Thanks. Stay safe, okay? You too, Jocelyn. All right. Bye-bye. Sweet. Uh, last word goes to line two. Cecil, you're on the air. Uh, you think Elliot Newhook is going to bring the cup home? I do. I really do. I Maybe do. I'm just overly optimistic, but I got a good feeling. Yeah, he's some fast skater. Oh, man, that boy can skate. I, I believe his legs are too fast for his mind. <laughs> really? What do you think? I, no, I don't think so, because I think he's got a really good hockey mind. He does a lot of great things away from the well, puck. He's, he's so fast. He is super fast. 
don't know how his brain can keep up with him. But anyway, uh, I just wanted to say that. And another thing, Dennis Brown had a lot to say this morning, and he should be taken very seriously. We will. I, I always take Dennis seriously on those matters, and I've got some plan for follow-up that I'm going to try to execute next week. Um, I mean, it's crazy. Three commissioners, four commissioners only need two. I mean, they're getting paid 100000 a year probably. Yeah, I think the concern there was you only need two for a hearing, but there hasn't been any dissent amongst the group for, what do you say, 2005 or something? That's like, right. How does that, how does that happen? going on there. I mean, I hope the premier is listening. Yeah, the PUB, I mean, there's some moves being made by Minister Studley, for instance, with the show us how you came up with your gas price stuff, but there's a lot more to the PUB than a just that price setting. There's not paid fast enough. 100%. Okay, sir. Have a good weekend. You too, Cecil. Take care. And let's hope we have a, a good uh, hockey talk on Monday. Let's do exactly that. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Cecil. Bye-bye. All right, he did indeed have the last word, and we will pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. Go, apps, go. Bye-bye.